Hello, everybody, and welcome back to You Can't Win. This is Tom here, and I'm joined by Don, as usual. Today, we have a very special guest, Freddie, and uh, I guess it's Wise Executor on Twitter that you may know him by. And uh, we're going to be talking about Jesus. Uh, he was watching or listening to this BBC program and uh, evoked some thoughts that he wanted to discuss, and it seemed pretty interesting to me. So we decided to have him on to, to talk about it. So we're going to be talking about Jesus and suffering and justice and the position of Jesus in uh, in Christianity and Islam and how they're maybe similar, maybe different. We'll see. Hey, guys. How's it going? Hey, Fred. How's it going? Uh, not too bad. Talking about Jesus always makes me feel like I'm on the precipice of saying something extremely stupid. <laughs> um, it's, yeah, uh, I know the feeling. Just the name alone, it kind of evokes like you better say something serious and real or <laughs> just shut know, up. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not just that a lot of very serious sort of theology and philosophy and history has been written about him, but there's an endless supply of just pure nonsense yeah uh, right and yeah. uh you know there's i think a certain amount of reverence is necessary and humility um but i nevertheless i'm going to say some pretty stupid things about him probably but i'll phrase them as questions so it's okay <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> so yeah i guess the thing that got me thinking about uh jesus particularly in relation to islam was i was listening to a bbc show uh with a former Moroccan army officer who participated in a uh, in an unsuccessful coup in 1971 or 1972. I think there were, you know, four or five coups within a decade that happened in Morocco, and I can't remember exactly which one it was. But there were uh, the leaders of the coup were executed by the king, and a lot of the the junior officers who took part were sentenced. Were, were, were put in. I don't think they were even sentenced. They just ended up in prison and. Uh, the person who was being interviewed, uh, a man named Aziz Bin Bin, was talking to uh, a BBC journalist who'd been imprisoned in Beirut uh, and had a, uh, not, I do, not 18 years. So Aziz was imprisoned for 18 years. Uh, this, I don't know, I don't know how long the journalist he was speaking to. I don't know how long he was imprisoned, but it was, um, the idea was, that, you know, it was a, it was a shared experience. But the experience that the, this Moroccan officer described was um, extremely uh, when you when you listen to something when you hear about something extreme I mean the idea of being in prison for 18 years is it's very it's it's hard to imagine you you know it's you know it's very 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 bad but an experience like that transforms you in in a way that uh, I don't I don't know if you know someone who, who hasn't experienced could understand obviously the human mind in a situation like that can can just absolutely go to pieces and he was explaining that um some of his fellow prisoners uh, a couple of them had uh, memorized the quran and they would keep their mind sharp by reciting it and teaching it to each other and um i i suppose this comes from a, a tradition i don't know very much about uh, but i i i people who memorize the Quran. Is that a sort of an established tradition? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They're called uh, Hafez. Um, and it's uh, it's actually relatively common, like much more so than you'd think, especially like children who have a like an, a traditional Islamic education. 
um, they will they will have the Quran memorized by the time you know they're 16, 17, 18. Um, and then often they will, if they continue on with like a religious education, that they'll just, you know, constantly be studying it and um, and revising and stuff. So that will kind of stay with them. And uh, I actually I heard I it's, I just remembered that uh, one of the I, I heard it suggested that one of the reasons it, it's I'm not saying it's not easy to memorize the Quran, but one of the things that facilitates its memorization is that uh, the Arabic, I guess, classical Arabic. That it's composed in um, is is very pleasant, or it has a sort of a rhythmic quality, um, or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I. What's funny is the uh, in the Quran itself, it actually says that you know God says we have made this easy to memorize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. God is God is yeah. very practical. Yeah, and you, and you <laughs> yeah. would sing it generally, right? Like, is that how you would memorize it? You would sing it. Well, you. We, we wouldn't say that we're singing it. We would sure. say we're reciting it. Okay, um, okay. But, uh, but it's yeah, like, there, there is a, yeah. a, um, a musicality to the recitation. There's a particular kind of, I'm not sure, I don't have the, the words for this, but like you, you know, you have to say certain parts in a certain way. You extend certain syllables. There's a kind of a tonality that's like established as the standard. There's a few different, um, like modes of recitation, I believe seven modes and they, you know, it's the same text. It's not like they have different ideas about what the content is, but certain things are, are just done differently. Uh, and it, it tends to be kind of regionalized. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I suppose, so when it was being memorized by these prisoners, it wouldn't have just been, I guess it's wrong to say it was just memorization because it, it, it had all those other aspects you just mentioned as well. Um, because when he said that it kept his mind sharp, uh, that was, that can't have just been, you know, I mean, one form of memorizing and reciting is the memorization and, and reciting that you do when you're just sort of parroting something out. Um, but if you're keeping your mind sharp, it, it implies a deeper engagement. Um, so yeah, I it, imagine so. Yeah, it was interesting. It's a little bit different than like, uh, just digits of pie or something, you know, yeah, like yeah, there's yeah. things to, to ruminate on and. Um, one thing that's interesting about the Quran is that it's very, there's a lot of like refrain and, and it's almost like referencing itself at times. Um, actually the, just the vocabulary in the Quran, there's a, you don't need a very large vocabulary to, to be able to just memorize it all. So like people who don't actually speak Arabic have been able to memorize it fairly easily considering the task, uh, because there's there's just so much repetition in terms of the certain words and phrases and things like that that are used. And, uh, that has an interesting effect where you, you have one verse because of just the fact that it's so similar to many other verses, it kind of creates these connections between them that you might not otherwise sort of have, oh, you yeah. know? So yeah, there's a, there's a lot to think about, yeah. I guess, when you're, when you're reciting. Yeah. Well, it, yeah, it's, uh, so th I mean, that fact alone interested me. But of course, it, the what we um, what we're saying and what we're reciting, if we're thinking about it, obviously shapes your thought. I mean, I think that's a, I think a basic materialist principle that we can take as axiomatically true. And <laughs> sure. um, that, uh, when he was talking about it, he mentioned that uh, there were other people whose minds started to just completely go, um, and 
every so often, I don't quite know how many other people uh, were in prison with them, but they had a way of communicating with each other, obviously, or otherwise they wouldn't have been uh, learning the Quran. But uh, he, he talked about a few uh, hearing, hearing people mentally uh, break down. Uh, and he said that actually being in prison heightened his, his hearing um, because they would tell hmm. what time of day it was uh, based on birds that were singing. So, mm-hmm. but um, so as well as memorizing the Quran, the other thing he he said, which sustained him, was that he would have religious dreams. Um, and he said that most of his dreams were about Moses. He would have long conversations with Moses, and I, I he didn't mm-hmm. really say, he didn't explain what any of those dreams were. Unfortunately, I would have loved to have heard them, uh, but he said apart from Moses, the dream that he remembers most vividly uh, was a dream about Jesus. Uh, who said, um, and I don't want to, I, I feel like if I misremember it, I'm, I'm doing a disservice to him um, and possibly to Jesus if he was actually visited by him. But uh, it was something along the lines of being able to find heaven and in hell. Uh, and he didn't say he was comforted by this. I guess the implication may have been that he was. Uh, but um, I don't know if it was if it was comforting exactly. It, it, the way it sustained him is something that I was interested in, and you didn't really. Um, I wasn't exactly sure what effect it had on him, but it was clearly important to him that he was that he he, he spoke to Jesus, who visited him in his dream in a in a halo. And um, I know that Jesus is important in Islam, so it's not odd that uh, someone who was in the process of memorizing the, uh, the Quran and uh, sustaining themselves in this very horrible condition would have, would have dreamed about Jesus. But um, it, it, it seemed to me that one of the reasons it might have, that he might have remembered this one most vividly is that in Muslim and Christian tradition, there is, I think, clear associations of, uh, with, with, with suffering. And this is obviously a different significance in Christianity, where Jesus is suffering, is symbolic. You know, the, the, it, it symbolizes the, the taking on the, the, the sins of the world, suffering for us. I was just wondering um, if, if the figure of Jesus had, had a similar significance in, in Islam or what that significance was, if it was something else. Yeah. Um, yeah, the the stuff you were saying there is kind of interesting to me. There's a few things that popped in my head, but I'll answer your question first. Uh, so there is, the, I would say that Jesus does have a kind of association with suffering in Islam as well, you know, as he does in Christianity, but it's much less central. It's much less... Um, because one thing about the prophets in general is that they are all sort of they all have this association with suffering because they are you know they're like righteous servants of god they're leading people against you know evils in the world and this kind of stuff and they're suffering because of it and there's a an idea that the people who god loves most are the ones that he tries the most and so the the prophets are seen as having the most difficult trials you know, and so thereby experiencing the most suffering as well. So I, I would say that like there is an emphasis on on the suffering of Jesus being like a big part of his, you know, what, what makes him stand out, I guess. But uh, 
in another, on the other hand, it, it it's also true that he, that that suffering is is just shared and it's more distributed across all of the the kind of major prophets that are spoken about in the Quran and whatnot as well. So it, it's definitely less central than it is in Christianity. But yeah, so just to before I before I forget, when you when you said that he was dreaming of Moses and and Jesus, uh, but mostly Moses, it, it kind of just reminded me that the prophets that are mentioned the most in the Quran, first it's Abraham, but I think Moses is second, and then Jesus is third. So there may be some element there where he's if he's really heavily you know focused on the Quran, reciting the Quran a lot, that kind of thing that he's thinking about these people a lot and so they are starting to appear in his dreams right well that kind of makes sense to me yeah that would um sort of undermine the nice thought i had which was well he dreamed of jesus because he was suffering but it could also just be because he was talking about jesus um, <laughs> <laughs> well you know they, they can be both but you know the death of the um, author you know it's uh Sure. You know, yeah. my, my interpretation is just as you know as valid as anything else. <laughs> yeah. Sure. What about Don? Don you you've been um, you know I mean your relationship with uh, Christianity has been one of rediscovery, right? Um, mm-hmm. It's it's how did you? I mean, is your your uh, how, how do you see Jesus as, as a figure in Christianity? I mean, did my suggestion that it was you know uh he's a figure who's significant in part because he suffered does that did that resonate or yeah and and actually i mean this is this is kind of a cheat but i want to sort of answer your question with a question for tom which is uh so in in christianity one of the big things obviously is that there's like this trans historical aspect of jesus's suffering kind of like he's taking on sins from other people um you know, like he experiences them directly himself. Uh, is that something that happens in Islam too, or is it just his own ministry kind of thing? Is it like his historical ministry that he kind of follows around? You know, like he's 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 wandering around preaching to people and stuff, and then he gets sort of like persecuted and uh, um, and then acute like a uh, sentenced to death at least. And uh, it, in that process, is there like a personal experience of his where he's taking on other people's suffering or is that just uh, not part of Islam? Yeah, so that that's a very key difference and, and so no, that, that's not part of the Islamic narrative. Like, just for maybe people don't know, but the crucifixion is often just outright denied by Muslims. Uh, it's sort of like a debatable question. It's somewhat ambiguous in the Quran what exactly occurred, but it is kind of outright stated that there was some kind of if not deception, but almost like an illusion or something that appeared in a way that was not really the reality of what was going on there. So it, again, it's not clear what in fact occurred. Clearly, um, Jesus is seen as someone who was persecuted, but the idea of carrying others' sins and that kind of stuff is actually, that's another thing that's just flat out denied, not specifically in regard to Jesus, but just in a general sense that it, in the Quran, there's a line that says something along the lines of, um, of like, no person will carry the, will be burdened with the sins of another. And so that's taken as like a theological point, uh, which I think mm. is just a little bit of a, it, it's, it's just because of the, 
the rivalry, so to speak, between Christianity and Islam that this has become, I think, uh, a little bit more of like a pointed issue where it's like, no, this this is explicitly denied in the Quran. It's not like laid out that way in the Quran, I would say, but it's it's kind of taken in that sense where it's just like, a, you know, this is something that we've been told by God cannot happen. And so this is like a, you know, just a point of contention or something. I, I don't necessarily take it to mean like, I don't believe that Jesus took on other people's sins, but I also don't think it's like some kind of big, you know, sure. de- some kind of big debate or something to have. But like, so in this situation of a person being in prison and then experiencing some sort of sympathy for the sufferings of Jesus and, and sort of, you know, is that what like the sufferings would be the trials of Jesus during his life uh, on yes. earth? Yeah, so. exactly. So he's kind of viewed as someone who, um, I don't know what the word is, but just like that he he bore suffering, like great suffering, and refused to kind of give in and um, achieve no like worldly gain from any of his preaching and, and all that. You know, like he, he didn't rise to any position of power or anything like that. And uh, so... That that that's what I think characterizes Jesus in Islam. It's there's much less focus on this idea of of the suffering in terms of like taking on sins or anything like that. That is that's pretty much just pushed to the side, and it's much more about here's a person who spoke the truth, led people to the truth, and was you know just persecuted by the powers that be for it. So just to be clear, you don't think Jesus was God? No. no. <laughs> So I didn't mean I didn't I, yeah uh, I I I, sh- I probably shouldn't be flippant about that kind of thing. If for what it's worth, I don't really understand the uh, the Trinity uh, anyway. So, but actually, the point you said um, before about you know uh, aspects of Islamic thought negotiating, I guess what you could call a, a political or ideological battle with Christianity and Judaism. I, I've become a little bit, I don't really know anything about it, but I've, I've become a bit, you know, interested um, in that more recently. I, 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 I suppose the, the biggest issue there was the, um, you know, the, the suggestion that a belief in the Trinity uh, was somehow covert paganism or, or was it was outright paganism? Yeah, I, I, th- I feel like that's kind of a, a very lowbrow cheap shot that is just easy to digest for people like it's a it's almost like a meme it's very easy to kind of spread this idea that like oh they have the trinity that means they believe in three gods and that's like an easy like you don't have to get into actual theological debates you can just like know that about christians and and then you can dismiss them as like you know just pagans or whatever i i feel like it's a little bit unfortunate that that is so common but i think that's just how these things go you know we have a billions of people you kind of have to find the lowest common denominator things to uh to explain stuff i guess yeah i mean i don't think there's anything necessarily i mean i don't think that the arguments were very very good i don't know if there's anything sort of debased about it it's it's the it's it's just a kind of a it's a way of talking that emerges in any intellectual tradition i guess it'll have there'll be more sophisticated and less sophisticated points but i i do Remember, there was, I can't remember, an, uh, an English historian, of, uh, I can't remember her name, um, but she was talking about early Christianity and how it managed to be 
uh, you know, how it became so successful. And she, she actually said one of the reasons, one of the reasons that's sometimes given for why uh, it was easy to persuade former pagans to adopt Christianity is that the idea of the Trinity made it easier for them to give up their old gods. You know, if, if you're unwilling to give up a, a god for your, you know, a household god and then a god for business and that kind of thing, the idea that this this a Trinity makes it easier for pagans to make that that move. Um, and obviously the function in an explanation for how Christianity succeeded is different to the theological debate, but I, I just thought it was funny that that, that criticism is, yeah. is being used in that historical context. I feel like maybe the opposite is true a lot of the time too, where uh, um, a lot of sort of peripheral Christianities, like people sort of converting on the fringes, uh, a lot of those tended to be people that didn't believe in the Trinity. Like it was like a con conversion where they would uh, believe that uh, um, Jesus was just a simple man. Or it would be like the opposite where it would like, uh, or, you know, some someone similar where like, Jesus was some sort of superpowered person or something. And, uh, you know, it was that process over time of consolidation of theology and sort of imperial power and stuff that, um, you know, got rid of a lot of those kind of things. But I think that, yeah, there, I think that, it, it, you know, in some ways it's kind of funny that, yeah, like there, there was that process where there were a lot of people that were new converts who thought of it more as just Jesus as like a sort of culminating prophet or something. So, yeah. When you said like a guy imagining him as like a super powered man, I kind of pictured like some Roman citizen in, in Palestine or whatever with the toga on and everything. He's like doing <laughs> yeah, the yeah. soy face because he's like going <laughs> to superheroes. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, that is funny because that, you know, when I was more uh, less of a believer in these things, like that's that's what it came across to me. A lot of it was is like just sure, yeah. People being like, uh, you know, because a lot of the stuff that's in the Bible is stuff like Jesus healing random people or something like that, and it just all seemed like it was some uh, superpower guy going around. Uh, it was, you know, it was like uh, Marvel comics for people that were mostly illiterate or something. So yeah. yeah. It it, it, um, remind, it reminds me of one of my favorite King of the Hill episodes where Bobby has to talk about a bit from the Bible for Sunday school. And he's been going to these magician shows with his parents and he's getting really <laughs> into magic. And so he decides to talk about Jesus turning water into wine and his, his, his the way of he presented it was like he was announcing a, like a magician show. And he's like, next up, the amazing Jesus is going to turn water into wine. And <laughs> yeah, everyone yeah. had, had um, everyone in the audience just, you know, it's like he, he'd done, Bobby just, he had no idea why he'd done something wrong, which is what I liked sure. about the, because it's, yeah, yeah. it's religion, you know, these, these, these religious ideas, you know, they do have to be, that there's something sort of like demonic or devilish in magic. They're, um, they're not things that you just naturally think it's, 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 you know, it's, it's the way, uh, religious ideas, um, sort of accumulate. You get some very weird things, um, in the mm -hmm. course of the development. Sure. Yeah. Miracles in general, like just as a concept has always been a little bit difficult for me to grasp exactly how to square that with like monotheism and sort of the overall point of it, you know, like yeah. it kind of seems it seems odd. I don't know. I, I mean, 
one one thing that's said in in Islam about miracles is that they were used to demonstrate to people like the the validity of of a prophet's claim to prophethood that God would sort of like do this to to uh, aid people in their belief mm-hmm. and there's even a passage in the Quran where I'm forgetting if it's Moses or Abraham now I think it's Abraham he's at, he asks God to perform asking God to perform miracles is kind of maybe not the right terminology, but basically he asked God to, to aid him in his faith, to kind of strengthen his faith and to do certain things that will kind of show like his power and, and kind of like, um, cause, cause he's going from like, he says that he, he looks to the, the moon and uh, realizes that, that the moon kind of like rises and falls and he looks to the sun and the sun rises and falls he look you know he looks to all these things to kind of identify what's the power in this world like what really is it and then realizes it's god and then he asks god to do these show him things you know show show me that that you're you're powerful not out of disbelief but out out of a like a desire to like strengthen his faith and to give him the strength to to be the prophet he needs to be you know Mm -hmm. yeah it's um the Wittgenstein has a really interesting comment about miracle. I mean, I don't know how much I go along with it, but he was talking about how uh, a miracle things appear miraculous. Uh, and I think in the context mm. of this philosophy, he's trying to understand the forms of human life where the word miracle has meaning. Um, and uh, which, which, you know, I don't, I don't know how, how clear that idea is, but I mean, maybe it gives you know, he, he's, he's wanting to look at how words are used in different contexts, basically. And I suspect this is what motivates his observation. But he was talking about how, you know, if a saint, if someone who seemed saintly was talking and then the wind blew the branches of the trees, it would almost look as if the, the person talking was moving, you know, the tree, uh, the branches of the tree uh, themselves. And it would, it would seem like a miracle. You'd want to quote it. But there's a, there's a naturalistic explanation, of course. But that's the conjunction of two things that seem meaningful. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But of course, you know, in, in the, in, in the Bible and in the Quran, it's not that kind of thing. It's, um, you know, bringing people back from the dead. Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of interesting though with, with Muhammad, his miracles are, I mean, the main one is just the Quran itself. And so, one thing that's said is that there are no more miracles. I mean, there's no more prophets. So like as a result, there's also no more miracles, but the, the Quran kind of lasts is like a lasting miracle. Like that's supposed to be the one that stands the test of time from, from there on, you know? And, and so people kind of, you know, of course they take that in, in really goofy directions. They start kind of trying to talk about like mathematical miracles in the Quran and everything. Hmm. I don't, I don't really buy into that kind of stuff, but some people really like it. Um, but, I, you know, we were talking about the memorization of Quran. Sometimes that's pointed to as one element to that where, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have this book. Like, it's a lengthy book, you know. It's not as, as long as the Bible, but it's it's a, a lot to memorize, you know, and yet people are able to do it. And so that that's kind of pointed to as one element to that. But so Muhammad has a second miracle, which was only kind of something that would work in his lifetime, which is that he supposedly uh, split the moon. And what's interesting to me is that um, from very early on, there were naturalistic explanations for it. 
like like Muslims themselves were were not necessarily looking to see that as like he actually split the moon. I mean, that's that's the standard sort of explanation, right? Like it, it says he split the moon, so he split the moon. Mm-hmm. But um, scholars and um, you know and theologians and stuff were were more than willing to kind of go along with the idea that it appeared as though the moon was split. And yeah. that is interesting to me because I think it indicates what a miracle is. It's not, I kind of see it as, uh, you know, we have the laws of nature, laws of physics, all this kind of stuff where, and in Islam there's even like a, a kind of a concept for this stuff, which is like the sunnah Allah. So we have the sunnah of the prophet there's sunnahs this is a concept that predates islam a sunnah is like a a way it's like a habit or a a lifestyle or something like that and it goes down to the really fine details especially with the with uh, muhammad you know we have like very specific things about what he did and how he did them and we try to emulate that um with the sunnah allah that's like the way that god acts in the world how he kind of creates and recreates the world from moment to moment so like we have the sun rises and it sets and then we have the seasons and you know all the kind of laws of nature and all that right mm. uh so a miracle is a break from that and it's an intentional break right like god changes his sunnah to to do something to demonstrate something mm-hmm. and so i it, to me it seems like the it indicates the point of the miracle is to create some kind of meaning out of that it's not just like an arbitrary random thing that just like you know, like a, a random mutation of genetics or something like that. Yeah. It's it's there's a kind of almost like a spectacle or something that's being done there. So whether the moon actually split or not, that doesn't matter. What matters is that the people had this experience of seeing the moon split when. So Muhammad he raises his staff. Like people are saying, like, oh, if you're a prophet show me, do, do something. And he says, what can I do? And the people say, split the moon. And so he just raises his staff and then it appears as if the moon splits. Hmm. So the fact that that happened and that those people were convinced by it, that's the, that's the miracle, right? That they, so, something changed in their hearts. And it's not like they were just like, oh, this guy has magic powers. Like something else happened. Like there's a, there was a deeper change. They realized that God is all powerful. You know, a lot of these people, it's not that they didn't believe in God and they had to be convinced. It's more that they had to accept the fact that God is, is, uh, is like all powerful in, in like, uh, the very, you know, the profound sense that that means from a monotheistic pers- uh, perspective, you know, there, what, there aren't these minor deities that intervene for you. It's you and God, you know? Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's kind of the meaning of miracles that I've come to that, makes a little more sense to me so it doesn't actually matter what the naturalistic explanation is what matters is the like the viewing experience of it kind mm-hmm. of that's funny because in i actually can't remember very much of hume's argument but hume wrote a a, 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 a sort of a pamphlet on miracles and one of his conclusions was that if you believe in miracles you have to be aware that a miracle is occurring inside you mm. just because you know the pattern there's something you know, where where uh, there's there's a sort of an empirical point here, which is you know we're shaped by the patterns of the world we live in. Right. Our, our our notion of causality is shaped by our experiences. We really shouldn't have to, to to think that something radically outside this could happen. To believe that there is some kind of say supernatural power at all is kind of a, a miraculous occurrence in your own 
which is not quite the point you were trying to make, I realize, but the, the emphasis on the what's going on internally as opposed to what's going on externally is it's it's uh it's interesting to think about it in those terms. Yeah, there's a there's a book that I haven't read, but um, our friend Mike ha- has read it and recommended it. And I, I don't remember the name of it, but we'll throw it in the show notes here. And it, it deals with miracles. It was uh, written very recently, well, like within the past five, ten years or so. And uh, it, it's, it's a, got a very interesting take from what I understand. It, it kind of talks about the different miracles and it, it explores what were they trying to say. And so it, it looks at like the virgin birth of Mary, which is a miracle that is in Islam as well as in Christianity. And it, it talks about the fact that it was a birth that was miraculous there. It's supposed to make us look at all births as miracles, as miraculous in in some kind of way too. Like it's almost like pointing to like, you know, look how amazing this is. It happened, you know, outside of the norm, but that should make you consider the fact that kind of like every birth is, is miraculous and amazing in a way, you know? So that's another idea that I find interesting. I think it's a good one because you hear a lot of stuff about God of the gaps, right? Which is um, an attempt Mm -hmm. to like found a belief in God and things that science hasn't explained, which is a, is a discussion that I just don't understand at all. It, It seems like a, you know, like a largely American thing. I don't know. It's, I, I mean, most, most, uh, my my understanding of religion is not of something where the you know the supernatural beliefs it's it, we you know religion is believing in just crazy supernatural stuff i don't think that's ever been sort of the core of religion in any in any epoch i mean religions have them but that sort of reflects the the way people thought at the time it, but uh there's um you know <laughs> I don't, want, I don't want to be a troll about it or anything because I don't completely believe this, but there's a sort of a science of the gaps, right, where, uh, you know, once you're engaged in this debate, you also have this idea that a lot of strange concepts we have are just going to be explained by science. And I think that's probably true, but the, 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 the you know, explanations for the origin of life, for instance, are, you know, they always, I'm, always, I'm, I'm always struck by how difficult um, scientific explanations uh, for the origins of life, or even to find a sort of a clear definition of what life is, um, how difficult that is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, uh, I'm not, I'm not saying that oh, you know, well, God explains it or anything like that. Um, but there are just there are gaps in our our no- not just our knowledge, but um, the the concepts we have for getting knowledge in the first place. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, because I feel you know, and a lot of a lot of uh, science began as philosophy. You know, philosophers would uh, sharpen the concepts that people needed. Yeah, natural philosophy, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Hume thought he was doing something pretty much along the lines of Newton. You know, Leibniz mm-hmm. was was trying to give onto you know he was trying to give uh, uh, arguments for God as well as around the same. You know, he was he was thinking about philosophical ideas around the same time he was developing calculus and he wouldn't necessarily have seen he wouldn't have demarcated philosophy from science in the way that we do now um but uh i don't know i guess i'm interested in the way that science and religion are thought to conflict i don't really understand why you know the, the 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 view of religion that people have which assumes there should be a conflict seems quite quite wrong-headed I think that a lot of it is just like a simple sort of sociological, historical kind of look at it where it's like, uh, 
okay, people used to believe all these other things, like, you know, different religions and things, and uh, they were using it as a way of explaining things around them. And now that we know why those things are happening, you know, like we know that the sun, you know, we, the earth goes around the sun and the moon goes around the earth and stuff. Now that we know that the, the earth goes around the sun, we don't need the Bible or something like that kind of thing. Like, I think that's, I think it is one of those one, ones where most of it ends up being kind of like a low level argument. Although at the same time, you know, simple, that's, that's a, that's kind of a trap in its own way is that just because it's a simple argument doesn't mean that it's wrong. It's just that that's where I experience it the most. It's kind of that sort of like flippant way. Although I always think of that sometimes it's like, uh, um, I bring it up sometimes, but there's this, there's this thing in, uh, the, the Christopher Guest movie, A Mighty Wind. There's like members of like a cult that are like, like a singing community, but like they're, they're members of cult. And there's this one member of the cult who's trying to explain, uh, you know, why they're not a cult to the interviewer. And he's saying that he goes, you know, we're not some crazy kooky kind of belief system, you know? All we believe is that, you know, all human life is light operating on the 47th vibration or something like that. <laughs> and, uh, and he says it in such a way that it's just like so obvious. I, that's, that's what religion used to feel like to me all the time. Yeah. It's like, it's like a, you hear things like that where it's like, uh, and, you know, it's the same thing. It's like, I think that like if someone like say criticized Scientology or something like that and you're like, you know, I'm sure if you're a member of that or something, you would be like, oh, well, here comes the e-meter criticisms again you know it's like yeah. uh, <laughs> but there's relig- something strange <laughs> yeah yeah it's good you know religion is old and it had to it had to uh, accommodate a lot of folk beliefs that you that that people weren't necessarily prepared to get rid of like when you hear about the the sort of the catholic heresies which were uh, uh you know knocking about the south of france where you know good catholics were worshiping uh, you know a dog they found and that kind of thing it's you know sure. it's 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 um I don't think there was anything, you know, unchristian necessarily about doing that. Although, I mean, it's, the religious authorities did decide that, you know, those people needed to be stamped out. But, um, you know, you take, but like, you know, to, with with Buddhism, you know, for, when you when you look at the, the sort of the central claims of Buddhism, which is, you know, uh, you know, life uh, uh, to crave is to suffer. You know, craving is suffering, and you're like, okay, yep, yeah, <clears throat> that's great. I'm I'm completely, you know, I feel like I, even if I don't necessarily want to adopt this as a religious truth in my worldview and the way that Buddhism wants me to, there's something sensible about this. But then you also get, and you know, there are uh, 138 or 38,000 levels of hell, and you're mm-hmm. like, well, well, I don't, I don't. Now that's that's where they lose me. Um, sure. But you want a view. You want a you want a view of religion where those claims, those cla- those those a lot of the crazy supernatural claims aren't the essence of the religion. If there is such a thing as an essence of a religion, um, but actually, what Tom in Islam, I, I mentioned that uh, there were sort of folk beliefs, sort of pre-Christian folk beliefs that could hang around in the belief structure. Is there anything like that? Do you think in in Islam? Was, is it or where where you you'll hear an aspect of. Uh, I don't know, a regional belief, and you think mm, that sounds like it could have been a sort of a, a, a pre-Muhammad belief? Um, well, kind of yes and no. I mean, honestly, the some of the practices are... The, the thing about it is there's, there's certain, I wouldn't say beliefs, but like certain elements of the narrative and certain practices that are very self-consciously. Like, it's very understood that this does predate islam and that it's it's sort of like unashamedly kind of just taking from pre-islamic practices and 
and stories and stuff. So the Quran references events that were like recent history at the time and that, uh, you know, we wouldn't know about necessarily today unless except for the fact that it's like part of the like the Islamic narrative. Like there's a, a reference to something that's like the um, the war of the elephants or the battle of the elephants or something like that. And it's like, well, I don't know what that is, but it was a an event where these elephants were used in as part of an invasion from Ethiopia into the uh, like the Hijaz, like where Mecca and everything is. And they were turned back by a bunch of birds that kind of just appeared and started dropping stones on the elephants for some reason. (laughs) And this was something that it wasn't like a a religious belief necessarily, but it was just something everyone knew about because it happened like 10 years ago. And it was like, Oh wow, this is, you know, it's in the Quran now. That's cool. So there's, there's stuff like that. Uh, but then there's things like Hajj was something that was, that was going on before Islam. It was, it changed after Islam. Like they kind of changed the way that it was done, but it, it was a big part of the, the practice of the, of, you know, the pagan sort of lifeways and stuff there. People would bring their idols to the Kaaba and it was a big, uh, like a trade hub. And it, that still, you know, it still is today as well. Uh, there's a, a, a kind of a funny anecdote that happens with the prophet at one point. He's uh, he's asked, asked about this pre-Islamic ritual or this kind of festival that was going on where people would slaughter an animal and take the blood from the animal and like rub it all over themselves. So they were just completely red. And that was, you know, they would do something like there was some kind of, you know, thing. I don't, I don't really know exactly the specifics, but he was asked like, is this okay to do? And he was like, uh, no, we shouldn't really be doing that. And then someone was like, well, my, my son, like my young son it really wants to do this and stuff. And he said, well, don't slaughter an animal. Just take these berries that kind of stain you red in the same way. And then, then you can do it. And then that's okay. But you know, as long as you understand, like you're not doing it as part of like a religious observance for some pagan God or something, it's okay. So the, there's things like that. And th- now that's not something that anyone does anymore. That was just like a, a very short term sort of thing that I, I guess died off. But yeah, there's just kind of a, an acceptance of like, yeah, people have these practices, these beliefs. There's very important kind of rejections that are asked of people when they become Muslim or uh, or even just like living in a Muslim land. Like there's certain things you kind of have to give up just to kind of like go along with things but overall i think there's a sort of a, a kind of an understanding that people just do things differently I, I guess a lot of the early muslims were from different places there were people from uh from east africa there were people from persia there were people from uh, what, what at the time was like byzantine greece you know so you had all kinds of different people with different ways of doing things different ideas and there was a kind of the central core that unified everybody, but a, a lot more like laxity once you kind of got outside that. Mm. I hope that answers your question. I'm not sure. Oh, no, it's, um, it gave me, it was giving me, it, it gave me very uh, sort of warm humanistic feelings. Uh, <laughs> no, genuinely. Yeah. I, I guess that's the, uh, the sort of the experience Malcolm X was supposed to have had, right? Um when he went on yeah i i i yeah i i feel that way whenever i go to 
the mosque and there's people of all different shades, all different backgrounds, you know, it's kind of a nice feeling like be praying there and there'll be a guy from Africa on my left, a guy from India on my right, an Arab in front of me, you know, like that's just Bosnian behind me, you know, it's kind of, it's a nice feeling. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's, it's better than nationalism. I think. Yeah. (laughs) Religion is bad when it is infused with nationalism. You know, that's when a lot of the, you know, but, uh, well, yeah, I was joking about that with, uh, um, before about Catholicism sometimes where, uh, they, you know, a lot of people online that are like trad cath types or something like that, you know, like are really into far right politics and stuff like that. And a lot of them are explicitly like white nationalist in different ways, you know, maybe not saying that directly, but, and I, and I said, like, it's kind of funny that like, you know, if you go to an actual church in most major cities in the U.S., it's going to be like, you know, people from Latin America, it's going to be Filipinos, it's going to be people from Africa, it's going to be, it's like, you know, I'm like, what kind of, I know, I know there are a lot of churches in the United States where that's not the case, where you're going to have very white congregations and stuff, but like, it's just funny that you kind of wonder what their experiences of the church are, especially if you look at like even just overall statistics of the church. I don't know. Now, at the same time, I know a lot of those parishioners might be right wing themselves. It's not like, you know, it's not like you just are somehow have some, you know, global humanistic kind of outlook just because you're from a different area or whatever. But like, uh, I don't know. I just think that's, that's kind of a funny thing about religion where, you know, it's a, it's taken on this, this thing where a lot of people, pull it into that direction um before we get any further i just want to double check is there anything else that you wanted to talk about about that uh sort of like bbc documentary or that you know experience of the jesus and the dreams and things that um before we uh, get too far away from that just because uh oh yeah on a tangent it's a good tangent but actually no there was one other thing which i found interesting uh, it, uh, he said that um i mentioned that he would, um, the, well, the prisoners, he and his fellow prisoners would uh, mark time by by listening to the birds. They knew if a certain guard was coming in uh, or they knew when a certain, you know, if the guards were changing, um, they knew what time of year it was, all these things based on the bird song they could hear. But uh, he said that uh, they knew um, when someone was going to die because an owl would, would start hooting an owl would fly into the the prison courtyard and they could hear it. And they would always start discussing about who it was, who was going, they'd always start discussing who was going to die if they heard the owl. And the interviewer asked what his explanation was, why he thought that, what, 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 you know, what he thought about that. And he said he didn't have any explanation for it. And when I was listening Mm -hmm. to this, I was wondering, this was in the context of, you know, formalized religious belief. Um, and I, I suppose, um, I was wondering if there was any, you know, religious connotation to what he was saying, or if it was just a strange experience that he had. Um, you know, when you, when you hear something like that, the explanations that you always want to give is that, well, his mind was going, or, you know, it was a kind of a collective, um, it was a sort of, I don't know, a collective COVID. They, they sort of miss, they misunderstood. <laughs> I don't know. They, they, they just sort of collectively subconsciously decided to interpret the owl like that and or whatever. But um, I don't know. I was, I was, uh, I don't really know what to think about that stuff. 
I suppose when I hear things like that, I have the attitude of those, you know, those 19th century, like American and, and English scientists who were, you know, open to the idea of seemingly supernatural events and would, you know, would study them and that kind of thing. But uh, it occurred to me that, um, I don't know, there are some forms of Christianity where you would not want to say that the, you know, you were, the animals were communicating with you. You know, that would be, a, you know, it's not that... Um, it's not that he thought that the owl was uh, was sort of was 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 prophesying something was prophesying something, but that uh, you know there there are some people who would who would not be open to that idea because it's just sort of out of step with their religious commitments. And Tom, I know you've talked about animals in Islam before, I think on a, on an earlier episode, but I I can't remember what you said. Is is this something that would fit in with an Islamic worldview? If you can, uh, yeah. Uh, so. I, I've never heard anything about owls in particular. It's possible there's something in Morocco or North Africa more generally that they have something culturally like that. Uh, there's plenty of sort of beliefs that don't, you know, percolate to like a universal level where someone like me would, would come to find about them, you know. But uh, so that's a possibility. I just don't know about it, but I've never heard anything. Um if I was going to take a kind of Muslim perspective on that and interpret that as like, you know, very much in that vein, I, I, I think it's perfectly in line with, with like Islamic beliefs and everything to just view that as God sent this owl, you know, that's doesn't have to be that the God, that, um, that the owl is some sort of prophet or, you know, that doesn't kind of, uh, step, you know, it doesn't cross any lines, theologically speaking, you know, uh, God sends, does all kinds of stuff all the time. And that's perfectly acceptable to kind of interpret that in that way. Uh, same thing with the dreams, you know, he's receiving these dreams. Um, we would see that as God sending him these dreams. Whenever you see a prophet in a dream, um, in Islam, that that's like a, that's what's called a true dream. So we, we talked about this a little bit on our episode about sleep and stuff we talked about dream interpretation in islam which is it's a it's a kind of a big thing traditionally and uh prophets are people that can't be impersonated by jinn or by satan so they're if you see a prophet and you're like sure that you've seen a prophet in your dream then you've really been visited by that prophet and uh you know in islam we also believe like when you dream it's not just like a projection from your mind necessarily that there are these things called true dreams and they come from God through angels and that you are in a real place. Like that's a, it's not like you've necessarily physically moved to a new location or something, but you, you are actually experiencing that is a reality that you are experiencing. It's so, yeah, that's interesting. I actually, I enjoyed that episode a lot because I found that discussion interesting because it's, you know, there's a lot of, there are some, you know, a lot of dreams you can't, you know, you can't do any, you can't do any high readings of them. You couldn't do a religious reading or you couldn't do like a, a symbolic Jungian reading or whatever. It's just dip. It's yeah. like, it's just like crap in your head that's been floating around and it's come out, <laughs> you yeah. know, it, like it's like the white noise, but there are some, you know, there are some that you really remember and you, you feel as though there's something more significant and you want an explanation mm -hmm, for right. it. And I like, that would be a true dream. Yeah. yeah. I'm, and so Aziz Bien Bean had uh, many true dreams. Um, but it was it was brought on these I mean these dreams he had so many of them clearly because 
he was in um in, in, a, in a very extreme situation i mean 18 years is um uh it's it's tough to think about uh, and it, it's those the, the fact that he you know the, the 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 dreams were such an important part of his getting through it i don't know i mean i don't know what point i want to make about it i just think it, it says something about the sure. kind of animals we are and how we should relate to our you mm -hmm. know how our religious beliefs are important it reminds me there's a very beautiful english poem from the 14th century called the pearl which is in the tradition of english i think a lot of english christianity or european christianity from the middle ages there was a, a lot of emphasis on dreams um, a lot of religious writing came in the form of dream narratives and the author of this poem who who's unknown describes his daughter uh, who died at the age of two and he falls asleep and he dreams that he's walking past uh, a river and on the other side of the river he sees you know uh, what is clearly heaven but it's a, it's a, it's it's a, and the, the dream is a very beautiful countryside, and he sees a woman on the other side of the river, and he recognizes her as his daughter that he'd lost, um, and this is where, and and I think we're probably all very familiar with this experience and the dream with a manifest content, used you know a Freudian term is a particular thing, but there's something deeper in our understanding which says I know this is that person or I know this, is, do you yeah. know what I mean? I don't. Sure. It's yeah. it's. Um, I, I knew it was him, even though it didn't look like him. And yeah. um, he recognizes this woman uh, as his daughter. And uh, she, she, he sees that she's wearing a crown. And he says, I don't understand why you're wearing a crown. Uh, you were, you know, you were lowborn. And he says, uh, Father, we are all kings and queens in heaven. And mm -hmm. it's uh, it's not just a way of you know dealing. This this isn't just a dream about about death. It, it's coping with with death and Christian doctrine, which is presenting a you know what I think you could describe as a very sort of egalitarian vision of heaven, despite the fact that you know you know they're they're using the titles of feudalism or whatever. Sure. Uh, yeah. You know, Hotep heaven, really. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, yeah, that's a uh, uh, religious dreams when you're dealing with grief. You know, there's always the ten I mean, a lot of there's a, there's a temptation, I think, to say, well, you know, a lot of religious belief is irrational because really it's just a way of making yourself feel better about death or by or about grief or whatever. This always seems sort of contradictory to me because you know one of the points of of a, of a religion is to help people deal with aspects of a, of a, you know, the bad aspects of a human life, which all people are subjected to, loss, grief, uh, you know, one's death. And it, to me, it always feels like, oh, uh, religion's helping you cope with, uh, with death or loss. It means their basic, their central sort of claims should be rubbish because they're clearly performing the psychological function. But, you know, these, these sorts of functional uh, dismissals just seems stupid because that, I mean, that's, that seems to me to be the point of religion. There's, there's no way you could make a, it doesn't seem like a good basis for an atheistic argument, but a lot of people seem to want to make it. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd agree with your objections. I, I, I wouldn't call that the point of religion though. I, I think that people kind of, maybe that's a cultural thing or something that's from their experience with religion, but I, I think that there's a lot of positivity, like there's a lot of, uh, religion also touches on a lot of the positive parts of life just as much. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know? Yeah. 
you know, so it, it seems a little bit odd to kind of cast it as like, oh, it's just a rationalization to help you kind of get through the bad things. Well, it, I mean, getting through the bad things is one of the things that religion is meant to do. It's it, by yeah, by its own sure. by its own lights, but it's also it's also a framework yeah. for the good as. But yeah, I didn't want to say it was just concerned with uh, with the bad things. But of course, you know, sure. there's there's a point there where um, descriptions of hell are always very very vivid. You know, in any culture, when you think about it, there's people's people's yeah. imaginations go go crazy. Uh, heaven's always harder. It seems harder to describe. It's sometimes it just seems really boring. English, like Anglican visions of heaven. It's it's like having tea in a waiting room almost. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I always like the verse in the Quran that talks about people in paradise, kind of just hanging out. They're uh, they're eating fruit, and then they'll say to each other, "Oh, we used to have something like this before. You know, we used to eat fruit, and it was you know fruit was great, right? It was nice and sweet and perfectly ripe and all this kind of stuff. But it's not exactly the same. You know, there there's a like a fundamental difference in the realities, you know, it's a, just a completely different sort of like dimension or something, you know? Yeah. So, but, yeah. but at the same time you get the, there's, there's these pleasure experiences in paradise just as there were in, in this world, you know? So I, I don't know. I've always liked that just to imagine these people hanging out. That's not having a That's, peach. You, you got to have someone to talk to. Uh, if you have a depiction of heaven <laughs> where you're just yeah. sort of standing around and singing and not conversing with someone, that doesn't seem that great to me. But the funniest, yeah. the, the best, my favorite, uh, one of the favorite accounts of heaven and hell that I heard was Tertullian, and he was encar- he was writing something. He was trying to encourage Christians. Uh, this was sort of the late, late, anti- very late antiquity, and uh, he was um, encouraging Christians not to go to the circus to look at the performers, he said, um, because, you know, you'll have plenty of time for that in heaven, because when you go to heaven, you'll see all the actors and the acrobats in hell, and the acrobats will be jumping much higher and much more nimbly, and the the tragic actors will be bellowing much more realistically because they'll be tormented by the flames of hell, and what's more, God wants you to enjoy watching them suffer because he made them suffer, and if you don't enjoy it, you're not you you're not doing the will of God because you're going against God's will. Sure. Um, wow. Um, I, I just wanted to, yeah. Another thing that's, it's sort of an obvious point, but it's just a, it's, it's, it's thing it's important for, for the discussion. It's kind of, is that, uh, it's true that like, you know, the sort of dealing with things like loss and grief and all these things, that's like an aspect of religion. And you can kind of have like these debates, which again, kind of are sort of sociological. It's like, Where's the, or psychological or something where it's like, what is the, you know, what is the psychological benefit of these sort of debates or something? But again, it's not, it's hard to say it's like the point of religion because in the sense, like the religion itself, if it's true on its own merits, it's fidelity to God and sort of fidelity to the the real actual thing, right? It's not, it's not like a, a story which is consoling. It's also just an actual reality that you're part of that uh, is important to uh, think. I think that sometimes becomes part of the problem with the debate when it's like, it's like trying to hash through the benefits and negatives of, of religion from the assumption that it's not true. You know what I mean? Like that's what a lot of the debates end up having to do with. And I can understand that, especially if it's like from say a Marxist perspective or something where it's like, it's almost, it's all religions are basically sort of folk tales that, uh, you know, 
you kind of have to weed out eventually because they or have to have some sort of accommodation with where they just force people into the, making these bizarre decisions and have strange loyalties and all that. But it's also important to just, you know, that's not how the religion kind of sees it. That's the Yeah, that's absolutely. It's like you can contrast, say, the sociological description of Jesus, which is, uh, you know, you can contrast, say, son of God with... Um, charismatic figurehead of guilt-based religion you know the differing attitudes there are not just you know troubling to say a christian person but anyone who who has a similar figurehead and i no, i agree with that i mean i i have to think about this myself because i'm doing philosophy about religion um Mm -hmm. and i think the for me the best conception that i've been able to have you know to, to develop which isn't i think the predominant one in philosophy of religion which is really you know, it just takes the Abrahamic religions as the as the main subject, um, and uh, you're analyzing the evidence for belief in a in a in an all powerful you know personal God. Um, but uh, I think um, I, I find it more helpful uh, thinking about religion from a you know from a normative point of view, uh, which is you know you acknowledge the fact that one of the things that religion does it gives you a total reaction. Uh, on the world, it orients you to, in, in, to reality in a particular way, and mm-hmm. yeah. um, uh, th- and that particular way being being quite total. And because it does it does this, or it performs a sort of orienting function. And I think you can talk about it in terms of a function. Then it, then it's apt for ethical, I think, rather than you know empirical uh, or sociological or, or epistemic analysis or any of those things. So you you want an ideal. Of, of religion, which you can judge religions against. I mean, this is what I think the point of philosophy of religion should really be. Um, but when you think about what it is that, that the role that religion performs, if you want to give an actually helpful description of it, it would be something like um, it not only sets out what high ideals are, high religious ideals are, um, and sort of systematizes them or gives you a framework of thinking about them, it also one of the one of the, the, the points I think is to sustain a commitment to those ideals, even if the world looks as though those you know go, it, the world goes against the grain of those ideals. If you know what I mean, uh, we have mm-hmm. high ideals. Mm-hmm. Evil seems to be a very prevalent and entrenched thing. How do you how do you sustain a commitment to high ideals in the face of, in particularly of evil? And so I think one of the most important thing religions do is it gives you a way of uh, sustaining. Uh, a commitment. And now, if you're analyzing religion on those terms, you are not doing the sociological thing where you're saying, oh, it's just performing this this function. You can actually take religion at face value. You can mm-hmm. you, you can assess their yeah. central claims. Um, you're not saying, you're not, it's not, because the problem is not just saying, oh, they're right or wrong. It's that point you made, exactly that point you made, Don, which is there's almost an assumption that you're not committed, you know, that they're not true, that you're not committed to them. Well, with the, this mm-hmm. kind of normative approach, which I think is better, you're not, you're not falling into that, you're not falling into that trap, which is why mm-hmm. I, I kind of like it. And, but it also, it, I mean, so the, the high ideals that religion is supposed to commit you to, um, which I imagine, which I imagine as being central to religion, I mean, there's no, there's no need to, 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 to try and even cast those ideals in a, in a naturalistic in a, in a purely naturalistic way, although I think you could without undercutting belief in God or anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, see, I mean, for me, the high ideals that I would I would gain if I 
was a good Christian and not an extremely bad one. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily see them as having any supernatural origin, but I do think they're revealed. I think uh, I do, I do think about Jesus as having revealed something that humanity didn't really know before. I can't say, you know, exactly what it is, but I, I think there is, I think there are revealed goods in religion, which go beyond conventional, uh, conventional understandings of ethics. Um, mm -hmm. but, but you can still discuss them in a, in a, in a sort of a philosophical, as opposed to say a theological way. Um, mm -hmm. I personally kind of, I mean, with me, I, I, I favor, I, my super ego favors naturalistic, uh, explanations, although my, 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 you know, my, my lower, the deeper, darker part of my mind still very strongly believes in the supernatural. Um, mm -hmm. Uh, but so, I mean, I think my, my intellectual project is almost trying to dig God out of the soil as opposed to sort of looking at, you know, finding him in some, as a, I don't know, some emergent property of, of physical matter. I don't know. It's hard. It's religion. I don't know. Religion does my head in. Sorry, did that, did any of that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, I agree with a lot of what you were saying. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because uh, <laughs> you know about about you know when i was trying to get those ideas out there was like i don't know 10 seconds in where i thought man I, this could be you know this may be just completely incomprehensible bullshit but it's too late now yeah that's me like every every episode we do this show <laughs> <laughs> no well I, as a long time listener i can tell you uh i've never had that uh, i've never I've, I've always uh listened very intently to everything uh, both of you have to say Thank you. Cool. Yeah. Well, that, that's nice, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just had a thought, you know, you, about this sort of like scientific perspective on religion and, and the view of it as like a rationalization and all that. And I, I was just thinking like the, the things that it views as rationalizations that religion performs, like explanations for death and kind of providing for justice where there seems to be none and all this kind of thing it seems like it's all of the things that a scientific kind of worldview cannot provide. And so if somebody else is providing that, it's, it, I don't know if it's like seen as threatening or something, but it seems like, like that's not fair. You, you can't do that. That's obviously false because my worldview doesn't have that. You know, if you, if you kind of just have the, like a very base kind of materialistic view of the world where people are born and they die and that's it there's no kind of deeper meaning to it than that then there is real there is no real justice except maybe like happy accidents here and there you know like things are just kind of shitty all the time for most people and so if you have some kind of narrative that provides a little bit more of a, like an optimistic, mm. hopeful kind of thing that like, Oh, things are set right in the afterlife and all that. That seems like cheating or something, you know? Um, so I don't know. I just wonder what you guys thought about that. Oh man. Yeah. It's, I, I don't know. I struggle with this thought a lot. I don't really know what to, to say. I don't think you necessarily need an afterlife. I mean, I think part of it definitely involves having to adjust your thinking to injustices in this in this life, I mean, even if claims about the afterlife of a particular kind were true, I don't know if that should necessarily make us feel better about injustices in this life. But oh yeah, absolutely. Like you know, one of I think both in Christianity and Islam is that you have to work for that. You have to 
try to make this place better, even though it's by design pretty bad for most yeah. people all the time. Yeah, what do you think, <laughs> like, Don, uh, yeah, yeah. what do you think of, um, I don't know if you came across the, I mean, actually, yeah, how, Tom, what, what do you think of this? Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is among you. And uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that seems to me to suggest that you ought to be trying to to bring about conditions of, of justice or you say even perfect justice between people in this life. It's sort of an admonition. Don't, don't, don't think that uh, justice or ideal human flourishing is, is out there. I think this is something that you could probably talk about, Tom, even if you don't accept that, you know, Jesus was really the, the true herald of the kingdom of heaven. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest. I don't fully understand exactly what, um, you know, what that term means for Christians, you know, I, I, that's not something I, I really know about exactly, but, uh, just on first glance, I, I completely agree with that. Like, you know, one of the things with both our religions is that there's judgment day. So you are judged based on your, your life. Like, how did you spend your life? Did you spend it just sort of like dismissing every bad thing that you saw and were just kind of like, well, you know, this is all just kind of like a temporary place and then I'm going to die and go to heaven anyway. So this is all, doesn't really bother me. Who cares? What's in it for me to kind of do anything here? Well, no, there's like a judgment on what you did, right? So all these bad things are happening because it's, it's like an opportunity, you know, buy the dip, go out there and try and fix things, you know, Mm -hmm. like you'll be judged on that and rewarded if you, if you're doing the right thing, you know? So, um, yeah, hundred percent. Don't I, I, the whole idea of like religion is just there to kind of like paper over this stuff and make things kind of stand for the status quo. That has happened, but I don't think we can say that that's like an inherent part of religion at its core. Mm. You know, it's it's gone the opposite way just as many times. I think that uh, one thing on this though is that I do think it's true that I don't know if it's that sort of statement and that sort of thinking is more. I don't really think it's about instantiating a certain egalitarian outcome in the status quo. I mean, like in the here and now or something like that as uh, it's not just the, it's not the possibility of that. That's the focus as much as the approach of the person and the people in the Christian community to the present or something like that. Like where it's like, it's uh it's, it's saying you have the, responsibility and the almost like gift like the ability to approach helping others and building some sort of unity and sort of egalitarian um, outlook and things uh, in your present but i don't think that it's uh, necessarily it, it's it, i don't think it, there's like a one-to-one correlation with it being the expected outcome of politics it's not mm-hmm. like uh it doesn't it doesn't mean that that means that uh that there's somehow everyone that hears that has to become basically like a communist or something like that, like out of that basic statement or something like that. I think people can maybe argue either way, if that's true, how you get to that conclusion Mm -hmm. or something. But I think it's more a matter of it's, it's basically, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's, it's it's the same basic message. It's the same idea of like, your work is not basically just to ignore everyone else in your society and just focus like, like with blinders on of I'm a member of the elect and I have to kind of just uh, keep my focus on that. But I think at the same time, you know, it's interesting because 
one of the problems I, I sort of think about this kind of stuff about, you know, like sex and relationships and things like that is somewhere where this kind of stuff actually comes up a lot pretty quickly because in the modern Catholic church, because, you know, there has to be a lot of different ways of living the religion. Like there just has to be, because mm-hmm. uh, if you look at things like uh, celibacy or something, right? Like it's like, um, which which in their Christian religion has relationships with justice and things like that, right? So it has to be true in the Christian religion that certain ways of living celibate lives uh, is saintly or something like that, right? Like it can't, it can't just be the case that like that is, that is all that there's so many examples of the saints and stuff throughout history and all that where it, it can't be true that like that's just a wrong thing or something like that, right? Now, the problem is that the Catholic Church builds a lot of things on top of that where they turn that certain types of examples into perfection, into, you know, lots of different types of people should be doing certain things and things like that, which, uh, basically like, I'm just, I'm just trying to get at the point that like, you know, when you hear things about like, you should be helping others and things like that, or like you should be trying to instantiate a certain type of community. And the thing, I think a lot of times, especially for me, I'll hear a certain type of way of life and, you know, assume that basically it's like reinforcing what I already believe about certain things about like, you know, we should be trying to build this kind of community, socialist community or whatever. And, uh, I, I think to myself that like, that's probably not the case. I, like, you know, there's people that lived as like um, hermits that went off basically by themselves and did, you know, just prayed all the time and things like that. And there's other people that feel like they have to be engaged every day with healing the poor and things like that. Like, it has to be something where it's like your personal call from the religion uh, does not necessarily turn it into everyone acting the same way or something. Yeah, so, it's, a, yeah. it's a very modern way of thinking almost where you've got to have rules, you know, you need to legislate and you need to legislate yeah. on behalf yeah. of everyone. You know, yeah. you get that. And yeah. this was actually Anscombe's Elizabeth Anscombe, who was a Catholic philosopher her on criticism of Kant. You know, he, she accused him of getting caught up in the fad of legislating, you know, where, where morality is the, uh, your reason legislates a moral principle on just behalf of everyone. I, that's probably not was exactly when you say the Catholic church built a lot of stuff into that. I, I guess that's not really necessarily what's going on, but it's what it reminded me of, because sure. I guess the basic point is people's life circumstances are, are various and mm-hmm. rules cannot be too fine grained. If you know what I mean, you know, someone wants mm-hmm. to, it's like, if you had a very, very strict idea of, you know what a monk was meant to do you know and and i i suppose some um you uh, the, the, you know i have very very strict ideas to develop but then you about being you know uh, uh, um getting away from the world uh but then you also had the irish monastic tradition which was just like walking around trying to convert people um, mm-hmm. and possibly getting killed and then you know you think about the the when you were talking about um celibacy you know that's a good life for one person but it's not necessarily a good life for another person in relation to religious conviction you know some people thought uh you know being being saintly or you know their, their religious calling was sitting on top of a of a big pillar you know the, yeah. the stylites, right. that's, stylites. You know, yeah. That's, yeah and just never coming down that's the stuff that um i remember being fascinated by that when i heard about it sure yeah yeah, and I think that it's funny because these things came up, I mean, they came up throughout the history of the, you know, sort of like Jewish tradition and things and uh, other, you know, historical sorts of uh, faiths and stuff. But like in the Christian religion, you know, that's that, I mean, that is basically the last 
part of the Bible is just all of these debates coming to life kind of thing of people. I mean, first in Jesus's uh, actual life, I guess, like him kind of dealing with all the people that are saying, you know, trying to catch him on different points and trying to him trying to like correct different points and stuff. But then you've got like a whole thing of like, you know, like, are we going to have to get circumcised now or something like that? You know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I don't know. I think it, I think it does come up pretty quickly with uh, any sort of thing. Um, You know, that kind of, that problem of, you know, what, what, uh, you know, what kind of diversity can you accept in something that's supposed to be the revealed truth or something? So, yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, yeah. it's a longstanding problem, but it's interesting. Yeah. That's a kind of a big issue for Islam these days. I think, I mean, I feel like once this kind of like mentality of modernity kind of crept into Muslim societies it like hit the mother load like you found this tradition of legalism that's just like so expansive it's like oh we can make a rule out of everything <laughs> yeah. you know and uh like traditionally historically these yes these rules existed yes people followed them and everything but it's also important to understand like these laws were never codified like through the entire history of Islam they there was no attempt to codify them until like the last 50 years of the Ottoman Empire. It was when they finally started to do that because they were kind of jumping on board with the whole modernization wagon. So it was always kind of applied by a person who it wasn't just like they had technical knowledge of the law. They were also trained and disciplined in a kind of ethical sense. You know, they their their character was also cultivated so that they would be able to apply these laws in a way that was just according to the circumstances so they would have an understanding of like what makes sense here all of these all the you know all the rulings and everything on the sharia are they're derived from specific occurrences of like well does this actually apply it's very conditional you know it's not just like this is the rule that can be arrived at through like logical kind of you know working that out and then it just has to be done this exact way with no discussion that's mm-hmm. that's never how it worked mm. previously. Nowadays, everyone just Googles something and finds out like some some guy in Saudi Arabia said this, and this is how we have to do it, and and that's it. That's like the end of the of the discussion. So, I think that's been a pretty bad. Th- People like to blame like like Saudi Arabia and the Wahhabi kind of evangelism and everything, and I'm no fan of that. I think that's a bad thing, but I think just as much just the the way that we think about this stuff is is uh, to blame. You know, it's not it's not just some kind of like Saudi conspiracy. It's it's also <laughs> just we we think about these things in a in a kind of a not a productive way. Like it's not the way that people used to think about them and applied them productively in their lives. And there's also a weird impetus I think to just make rules more and more and more sort of specific and detailed. I mean, it depends mm-hmm. on the context. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be in in, in, in sort of secular legal co- um, context. You know, criminal law is going to be very different from I don't know, you know, tort law, property law, yeah, that kind of thing. But um, in um, there is, but there is, it's particularly if you're thinking about morality in a legalistic sense. You know, you you have you want to make things, you want to make thing, you want to get very very fine grained principles. And actually, um, G. A. Cohen. Um, who we were talking about before recording, but the Canadian sort of quasi-Marxist uh, philosopher, his um, uh, he was he was arguing against uh, some Rawlsians who were suggesting that um, the rules of justice must be public, 
um, and they also need to be quite fine-grained. But he pointed out that very fine-grained rules become tyrannous, um, especially when it relates to things like distributive justice or, or other forms of justice, because if you have very fine-grained rules, um, it's you know that they could they, they they will apply to your actions just in in the most insane way you know they would it's it's a, it, it becomes a form of control mm-hmm. um, and that's not how you know humans humans don't flourish <laughs> if if they're no. bound by very very fine grained rules and this is you know with with a lot of the I don't want to say wokeness or identity pop but you know in in, in a lot of like online based moral discourse and I think this stuff is basically just online because you know a lot of the stuff people say there you know you can't i just can't imagine people making these points to another person's face it would be you know you'd feel almost embarrassed to, to sure. for, for instance an example would be you're not allowed to ask taxi drivers where they're from would be an example of a very <laughs> yeah. fine grain yeah. because that's a microaggression you know the, the microaggression yeah. stuff is i don't i don't want to be a person who complains about this stuff i actually i just think it's an interesting example sure. of, of rules becoming very very fine grained um, yeah, I was actually sorry. I was actually thinking that while you were saying that, I, I was like, I, I was like, I want to bring up maybe this sort of stuff that's going on online, but I don't really know if uh, maybe people would accept that sort of transition in the conversation. But yeah, I mean, we both thought the same thing, I guess. Where yeah. we were talking about this with Felix last week, where we were saying that, like, I don't know, you know, it, it does seem like there's this, there's this. Uh, I don't know what it is, but it's like a renegotiation or like a new debate. Maybe this happens all throughout history. I don't know. But like where there's, it there seems like there's like a set of people that are developing new sort of morals. I don't know if morals is the word, but like terms of politeness or something, manners, I guess. But mm-hmm. like, you know, it's uh, around these things. And I don't know if that process is necessarily bad in itself. Like it's just a natural sort of thing. You're going to have that kind of thing, especially as attitudes towards things like racism and sexism change and things in different ways and take on new meanings and all that. But like, that's just kind of a process that's happening. And the difference is though, I think that like, uh, yeah, you do get this process where people are trying to establish new rules that don't cohere with uh, the old, more loose rules about certain things. And then that process ends up constantly exploding in different ways, right? Like where people will be trapped in uh, contradictions in their logic and stuff. And it's because it hasn't been ironed out yet, really. I mean, if it's ever ironed out, I don't know. But like, uh, you you can kind of see that process in real time now where there's people who seem shockingly confident about certain things being out of bounds. And then other people that just have no idea what you're talking about. You know, not even, it's not even like that there's a debate. It's, It's like, as you said, like, the idea of not asking a cab driver just wouldn't even occur to someone that that would be a yeah, thing. Yeah. Now, that might be a type of ignorance, but it's still like a, that's a change in morality or something. So, yeah. It's odd. There's a lot of, you know, it's working out so much of it, especially especially when it's online, which is a sort of an arena for, you know, venting emotional dysfunction um, in a way mm-hmm. that allows you to interpret it as this you know you're you're in the you're okay you're in your id you know when you a lot of these yeah. discussions you're in the deep deepest darkest pits of your id but you, yeah. the story you're telling yourself is that you're in this platonic form of of like perfect justice you know sure um, yeah and 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 that's that's a lot of the mistake the, the social aspect of it is interesting i mean here's a here's here's one way i understand the way a lot of moral 
language because I think it is it's moral language. I don't quite want to call it morality sometimes or ethics. I mean, they are what sure. you could call moral rules, but there's um I, I think part of it can be explained by uh, analogy to uh, I was I was listening to an historian. Um, describe some research she'd been doing on hygiene practices in the United States. And she was talking about how um, hygiene practices developed in, you know, America and Europe in the sort of the mid 19th century. Um, there was a particular, so there was an emerging middle class and they weren't uh, aristocrats. They didn't have title. They didn't have land, but they needed class markers. They needed to distinguish themselves because they weren't proletarians. They, you know, they weren't, um, you know, they weren't low and they needed, they needed something to establish themselves as a sort of a social class. And one of the things that they sort of collectively uh, seized on was hygiene practices. So, you know, mm-hmm. bathing three times a day, you know, uh, and, and, and associated things. Now, part of this is because there was uh, an explosion of scientific knowledge uh, around in the area of health and hygiene. So it was, it was a mm-hmm. new body of knowledge, which allowed for new forms of sort of social practices, but because it was being used because it was, and I think empirically, it makes sense to say that it was, you know, hygiene practices did take on this sort of social class class function. You, you had a lot of sort of weird ideas built up on top of it. So one of them would be, you know, there was this idea that the whiter a bar of soap was, the cleaner it would be, you know, mm-hmm. um, and this is not something that you know makes a lot of sense, but it was its symbolic value was important for the function that hygiene practices were serving. And of course, you know, if you if you were a poor person and you had a, a you know a doctor or a lawyer looking down their noses at you, you know, you disgusting prol, you know, the antagonism inherent in that kind of interaction, you know, uh, uh, the, the person on the receiving end of that snobbishness might be inclined to say, well, it's all bullshit, you know. It, it's, it's yeah, right. that's the emotional temptation. Um, and I think something similar is going on with a lot of the moral, you know, that, that, that particular kind of moralizing. But what I think um, this, this, why I think this analogy might be useful is because, you know, you can, you can agree completely that the middle-class hygiene practices were really, really, really annoying, you know, um, but that doesn't mean hygiene is itself, that the, the, some of the basic claims of hygiene are, you know, are wrong. So sure. I, with, with the identity, and I think this is a, the mistake a lot of the people make, you know, they're irritated, they're so deeply irritated by the discourse that they become emotionally invested in just, you know, destroying it, root and stem. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, something that uh, um, the Brunigs talk about a lot on their podcast about like polarization, uh, sort of driving people to pick one side in an argument which isn't necessarily right but uh sort of represents everything that uh sort of uh they you know it's the opposite of what they dislike in the other side of it or something like that kind of thing and that happens constantly in sort of these micro cultures online and stuff where you see people who you know you can you could just basically almost ask them their assumptions of how politics works in different countries or something or different sort of milieus and they you know you can you can kind of tell that they would have no idea like maybe something like uh you know everyone hates elon musk or something like that you could say something like that everyone hates elon musk well it's not true because 
most people either don't know who he is or have maybe some weird positive kind of thing about him or something like that, right? But like within their milieu online, everyone hates Elon yeah, Musk yeah. and can make that kind of joke about it or something. Um, that happens with constantly with different things, I think. And uh, how people position their debates or arguments and stuff really, really ends up... To, or I, to me, I noticed it a lot with like debates about China or something where a lot of people have this idea now that the overarching sort of feeling is that China is the big enemy or something like that kind of thing. So then they have to take the other side of that argument basically and say, well, no, 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 we, we accept, you know, large swaths of the official Chinese ideology as a strategy of critiquing that drive to war or something like that kind of thing. And it's like, you get stuck in that subculture or something like that. And I think that, I think that that's just a natural sort of ideological thing, but uh, um, it is one of those things where if you don't, pull yourself out of that sort of cul-de-sac i think a lot of times throughout your day even you know um you're gonna get yourself in weird positions oh yeah yeah oh yeah it's um it's almost like staring into the void you know there's a moment where you realize that you could spend your day and potentially you know the rest of your life getting you know caught up in this stuff and it's like you either step back from the void or you don't but actually i thought tom i remember you talking about the the sort of the way prayer functions your day in a really uh, structures your day in a really helpful way and i was thinking that you know if you have to pray at a particular time of day you know that's going to get you offline at a particular point maybe you know what i mean (laughs) (laughs) it's helpful it's one of those things that it makes your life better so i mean the point of prayer is obviously worshiping god but it it, uh, does make your life better in other ways i think sure yeah I, yeah. I actually mentioned this. I was talking to a, um, to a, I was reminded when I was talking about taxi drivers earlier, I was, I was talking to a taxi driver and I, I mentioned that someone I knew had made this comment about prayer because we were talking about religion and I was referring to what you, what you the, the helpful aspects of prayer. We had a real nice chat. Oh, cool. And, um, as I was, um, as I was getting out, he said, um, if, um, uh, if I don't, uh, I, if, if, if we don't meet again in this life, we'll meet again on judgment day. And then he gave me his card, oh. <laughs> yeah. which is it's nice. very, I think about that and feel good. Sure. Yeah. Um, that's cool. Well, why don't we wrap it up there? Unless do you have anything else you wanted to add or is that you feel, uh, I don't know. No, I, th- I think we covered just about everything. Sure. Okay. Yeah, I don't know. Well, it was great to have you on. It was nice ch- chatting. I enjoyed it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Is there anything, Tom, you wanted to add? Or? No, yeah. I, th- I really enjoyed that conversation, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, so, uh, all right, guys. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like a second episode of You Can't Win Every Week, you can subscribe to our Patreon, and for $5, you'll have that, as well as access to our Discord, where you can chat with us and our lovely community. If you want to send us questions, which I promise we will get back to answering at the end of these episodes, you can go to the Twitter account, at You Can't Win Pod, and you'll find a link to our Curious Cat there, where you can send them in anonymously. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you again next week. Bye, guys.